Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 22nd and last audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. After this podcast episode and set of readings, all you have left for the course is the third and final quiz. Congratulations! My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. As I hope you know by this point, I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. We've also been joined this semester by the occasional snoring sounds of my dog's bubbles and sprout and the chime of the tags on their collars clinking together. Having an online semester has been quite the experience. 22 audio lectures is a lot, but it's only the beginning, only an introduction. Today's episode will talk about environmentalism and we will wrap up the term by talking about world making. Let's get started. On veut des tours d'avion, des Airbus, du diesel, des mandarines toutes les saisons, des grands voyages dans le ciel, du high-tech à la maison de la nouvelle technologie. On veut pouvoir dire pardon et soulager son esprit. On veut de la viande d'Argentine, de la biloche à tous les repas, de la world food dans la cuisine. On veut du sucre, on veut du gras, on veut moins cher, on veut meilleur, on veut toujours un peu d'ailleurs. On veut la mer, on veut l'été, même en hiver, on veut bronzer. On veut Today's song is Greenwashing by the band Trio. Trio is a French-language unplugged ska acoustic band known for their politically charged lyrics whilst also utilizing humor. In this song, they are discussing the phenomenon of greenwashing, which is the process of conveying a false impression of providing misleading information about how a company's products are more environmentally sound. As Trio says in the song, it is a type of marketing. Greenwashing is a mask used to cover up unsustainable corporate agendas and policies. Greenwashing exists outside of the corporate world as well. We can see this in politics and in university policies as well. For example, this is the reason McGill professor Gregory Mickelson resigned over McGill's refusal to divest from fossil fuels. Let's start class by defining a few terms. Environmental racism refers to the ways in which the impacts of pollution and the climate crisis are racialized. We can see this in how toxic waste facilities, garbage dumps, and other sources of environmental pollution are placed in neighborhoods populated primarily by people of color. Environmental racism plays out in the local context of air, water, and soil pollution. In the global context, we can see how the climate crisis and effects of global warming disproportionately affect people in the global south. A key book in defining environmental racism is the 1990 book Dumping in Dixie by sociologist Robert Bouillard. In the book, he looks at the locations of waste sites and NIMBY, not in my backyard movements. In a 20-year comparative study led by sociologist Robert Bouillard, he found race to be more important than socioeconomic status in predicting the location of the nation's commercial hazardous waste facilities. Examples from his research include the fact that African-American children are five times more likely to have lead poisoning, the leading environmental health threat for children, than white children, and that a disproportionate number of people of color reside in areas with hazardous waste facilities. We can see environmental racism in how governments react to certain natural disasters, such as the long-term, clean, 
long-term cleanup of the environmental disasters caused by Hurricane Katrina. We can see environmental racism in the fact that there is a lack of clean, drinkable water for indigenous communities in Canada. Boil water advisories have been in effect for upwards of 20 years in some communities. We can see how the impacts of air pollution and environmental racism have exacerbated coronavirus for black communities. The effects of environmental racism are intergenerational. Intergenerational environmental racism is perpetuated when future generations are affected by environmental racism. This includes, but is not limited to, the exposure of environmental toxins in utero. In this course, we have come back to the question again and again, who has the voice of power? Whose voices are we hearing? It is vital in environmental work to listen to the voices of people being the most affected. It is vital that we listen to the voices of indigenous people, black people, and people of color as part of our work in the climate crisis. I've linked to an interview done by McGill graduate students, including PhD candidate Rakib Tesfe of Broad Science, speaking to Jared DeWeese about amplifying black voices in the climate discourse and intersections between COVID-19, the environment, and black communities. Environmental classism is related to is a related construct to environmental racism and looks at the ways that the deleterious effects of pollution and the climate crisis are classed. It is impossible to talk and discuss about every aspect of environmentalism and the ways that the impact of the climate crisis and pollution are gendered, racialized, and classed today in this lecture. However, water is a key place to begin the discussion. I chose water because reports have found that Montreal's tap water has one of the highest amounts of lead contamination among North American cities. For those of you living in Montreal, I've included a link in the transcript from the city of Montreal to help you check the lead levels in your water. Water is a starting point for talking about toxins, biomagnification, pipelines, and environmental racism. I'm going to play a clip of indigenous water activist Autumn Pelletier. Pelletier is the Chief Water Commissioner of the Anishinaabek Nation, and here she's speaking at the UN. Last year at 15, Pelletier gave a speech to the UN in which she discussed how she's been taught traditional knowledge from an early age about the sacredness of water and that more people should learn these lessons. In the transcript, I've linked to the full seven-minute speech. Unlike several Canadian Indigenous communities across Canada and the United States, and international countries in third world conditions where they don't have access to clean drinking water. I can't even imagine what, it's, what it is like to be dependent on bottled water. I visited a northern community called Attawapiskat, which is located on the James Bay, and I spoke to kids, and they shared their concerns and what it was like for them. No child should have to experience not knowing what it's like, what clean wa running water is. This makes me upset. This is why I'm here today. I've been raised in a traditional way and knowing my territory and the waters around my country and the issues my people face. I've heard of places like Flint, Michigan, Six Nations in the, of the Grand River, all across these lands, we, we know somewhere where someone can't drink the water. Why so many and why have they gone without water so long? I shared my thoughts with our prime minister and he promised me in 2016 he will he would look after the water and as a youth I will hold him or any future leader to the promise for my people. Children in northern Ontario communities right now still can't drink their water. Water is a basic human right. We we all need to think about the planet and work together on solutions to reduce the impacts of human negligence. In this clip, 
Autumn Pelletier speaks about how water is a human right. She also speaks to how lack of access to drinkable water is an issue for many indigenous communities and also for Flint, Michigan. A key example of environmental racism is the fact that the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, a predominantly black community, is still ongoing. A leading activist in Flint, Michigan, Mariana Copany, also known as Little Miss Flint, is best known for raising awareness about Flint's ongoing water crisis and fundraising to support underprivileged children in her community and across the country. Water pollution is a key point for understanding the impact of settler colonialism, the legacy of slavery, and ongoing environmental racism. Water protectors lead the fight against pipelines which threaten water and the climate. Water protectors are dedicated to protecting the water, supporting indigenous youth, and supporting native women warriors. They gather with trusted affinity groups who are inside of their communities to actively engage around dedication to the future generation's need of water. We can see the work of water protectors in the protests against pipelines, such as the Keystone Pipeline in Northern Dakota. Protesters faced police brutality fighting the pipeline. In November of 2019, the pipeline leaked, the pipeline leaked 383,000 gallons of oil in North Dakota. Commenting on the oil spill, Joyce Braun, a frontline community organizer of the Indigenous Environmental Network said, this is exactly the kind of spill we are worried about when it comes to the Keystone XL being built. It has never been if a pipeline breaks, but rather when. Some activists from the protests have been indicted on charges that carry up to 110 years in prison and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. They're among the harshest penalties environmental activists have faced in the last decade. Here in Canada, over the past few years, the Trans-Canada Coastal Gas Link has tried to criminalize Unistodan Camp and forcibly facilitate pipeline construction across unceded Unistodan territory. The Unistodan hereditary chiefs, who collectively hold title and govern Unistodan territory, according to Wasowetan law, say that these actions criminalize individuals who have labored to protect the land and water. Trans-Canada continues to ignore the jurisdiction and authority of the hereditary chiefs. Water is key. In 2008, the United Nations released a report on the dumping of toxic waste on indigenous lands around the world. I linked to that report in the transcript. The report states that indigenous land and waters were being targeted by industrialized nations for dumping of toxic or radioactive waste from industrial or military operations, often without informing residents of dangers. Ecosystems were also being destroyed in the search for natural resources for example, in the phosphate mines of Nauru and the Makatea Islands and the copper and gold mines in Papua New Guinea. This brings us to the first reading for today, the introduction to Rob Nixon's 2011 book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. To begin, the definition of slow violence is incremental and accretive forms of violence that harm peoples and ecosystems around the world. Nixon's project on slow violence elucidates both political and literary forms of resistance to slow violence that give voice to the environmentalism of the poor, a term coined by sociologist Ramachandra Guha. The violence wrought by climate change, toxic drift, deforestation, oil spills, and the environmental aftermath of war takes place gradually and often invisibly. Using the concept of slow violence to describe these threats, Rob Nixon focuses on the inattention we have paid to the attritional lethality of many environmental crises, in contrast with the sensational 
spectacle-driven messaging that impels public activism today. Slow violence, because it is so readily ignored by hard-charging capitalism, exacerbates the vulnerability of of ecosystems and people who are poor, disempowered, and often involuntarily displaced, while fueling social conflicts that arise from desperation as life-sustaining conditions erode. By approaching environmental justice literature from this transnational perspective, he exposes the limitations of the national and local frames that dominate environmental writing. So basically, you can murder people with a gun, or you can murder people through water pollution from the mining of the metals to build that gun. A drone can be used in direct warfare. The toxic process of building the drone and the effects on the environment and on the workers who build that drone and dispose of that drone kill people slowly. This is slow violence. Slow violence reminds us to be wary of techno-utopianism or techno-solutionism when thinking about the climate crisis. Technological utopianism, often called techno-utopianism, is any ideology based on the premise that advances in science and technology could and should bring about a utopia or at least help to fulfill one or another utopian ideal. Meredith Broussard makes the case against techno-chauvinism, the belief that technology is always the solution. Broussard argues that's not true, that social problems would inevitably retreat before a digitally-enabled utopia. Technology can be a tool, but we must remember that there is not a divide between the cyber and material worlds, because the servers, the routers, the computers, satellites, and phones that enable our virtual communication are material objects made of metals, which are mined, chemicals from mining leak into the watershed. These toxins affect the bodies of current and future generations. They also impact other organisms in the environment. Susan Kite, who has been teaching the Indigenous Feminisms course for the past two years, explains in her work on Indigenous Protocols for AI that part of Lakota epistemology is to think about the lifespan of what you create. Before you build something, you need to think about what will happen to it at the end of its lifespan. How will it be disposed of? What will happen to it? Slow violence provides a framework through which to view environmental racism and classism and bring forward thoughts about what will come with what we build. We shouldn't assume that technology will save us from our environmental problems. Ecofeminism provides another frame, a complementary frame. As Mar- As Mary Meller wrote in Feminism and Ecology in 1997, ecofeminism is a movement that sees a connection between the exploitation and degradation of the natural world and the subordination and oppression of women. It emerged in the mid-1970s alongside second-wave feminism and the Green Movement. Ecofeminism brings together elements of feminist and Green movements while at the same time offering a challenge to both. It takes from the Green Movement a concern about the impact of human activities on the non-human world and from feminism the view of humanity as gendered in ways that subordinate, exploit, and oppress women. Ecofeminism enables us to see how the discourse around population and reproduction, animal rights, the politics of meat and consumption, agriculture, land access, water rights, environmental toxins, energy and extraction policies, nuclear energy and warfare, urbanization, and climate change are gendered. It is impossible to discuss resource extraction and usage without understanding globalization, capitalism, and international development. Lindsay Nixon reminds us in Ecofeminist Appropriations of Indigenous Feminisms and Environmental Violence, starting, quote, 
about the irony of using traditional indigenous knowledges to legitimate Western ecological and environmental concepts, and this is too often ignored. Herein lies the problem of Western environmental frameworks, which evoke indigenous knowledges. While these attempts are often prefaced on the apparent reclamation or preservation of indigenous knowledges, this practice is both an appropriation of indigenous worldviews and an erasure of the settler complicity in genocide within these occupied indigenous territories, indigenous self-determination, and the return of stolen indigenous lands are essential to the reclamation of indigenous knowledges. Separating indigenous knowledges from their political context only reinforced the denial of indigenous genocide within these territories on which the settler state legitimizes itself, legitimates itself. If eco-feminists truly want to engage with indigenous feminism to legitimize their own movements, they must first engage with their own positionality and privilege as settlers, a positionality on which the continuation of settler colonialism and the ongoing genocide of indigenous peoples are prefaced. I have linked to Nixon's full article in the transcript. Settler colonialism, capitalism, racism, classism, and sexism intertwine. We can also see this in Vandana Shiva's work. Vandana Shiva, author of the other text for today, the 2009 piece Development, Ecology, and Women, Earthcare, and Anthology in Environmental Ethics, is, famous, is a famous eco-feminist, environmental activist, food sovereignty advocate, and anti-globalization author currently based in Delhi. In her work, she problematizes the development narrative. She shows how the economic models of extraction are unsustainable and the gendered effects of these policies. Shiva's work may remind you here of Marilyn Waring's work that we read earlier this semester about issues with economic systems and how relying on GDP leads to social injustices and environmental catastrophe. Shiva draws attention to the Cheapco movement, which began in the 1970s, which was led by women protesting against deforestation. Rob Nixon, Vandana Shiva, Lindsay Nixon, and Autumn Pelletier all point to the role of capitalism, colonialism, and neocolonialism in the climate crisis. We need large-scale transformations in order to combat the social injustices that enable environmental racism. We need to shift the conversation away from individual choices. I want you to remember that it was British Petroleum, or BP, that first promoted and popularized the term carbon footprint. The company unveiled its carbon footprint calculator in 2004 so individuals could assess how the carbon impact other normal daily life. This shifted the discourse to being about individual decisions rather than large corporations, rather than political decisions, rather than systematic decisions and change. This course is ending with a lecture on the environment because it is here we can see how intertwined racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, ageism, colonialism, and neocolonialism, and other forms of social injustices are. These are issues that are tied up in one another. To create a more socially just world, all of these oppressions must be worked on at once. Since today is the last lecture of the course, I want to end with a few words on world making and hope. Today's lecture in particular might initially provoke certain feelings of grief. Ecological grief is grief felt in relation to experienced or anticipated ecological losses, including the loss of species, ecosystems, and meaningful landscapes due to acute or chronic environmental change. As Ashley Consalo and Neville Ellis show, 
Research shows that people increasingly feel the effects of these planetary changes and associated ecological losses in their daily lives, and that these changes present significant, direct, and indirect threats to mental health and well-being. Climate change and the associated impacts to land and environment, for example, have recently been linked to a range of negative mental health impacts, including depression, suicidal ideation, post-traumatic stress, as well as feelings of anger, hopelessness, distress, and despair. It's not just this lecture, though. Feminist and social justice studies bring forward the oppressions and injustices in the world. The load can feel like a lot. I want to end today's class and the semester thinking about what kind of world we want to create, the kind of world that we want to live in and fight for, because that is what this is all really about. Feminism, social justice, it's about working towards justice. Alice Walker, whose work we have discussed at multiple points in the term, has said, We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for, Walker says, because we live in an age in which we are able to see and understand our own predicament. With such capacity for insight, knowledge, and empathy, we are uniquely prepared to create positive change within ourselves and our world. You are all so capable and can make a positive difference in this very unjust world. Social justice gives us tools to use and inspires us to change the world for the better. It can be so frustrating because social justice does not have overnight deliverables. In a recent talk at Guelph University, Angela Davis spoke about fighting and resisting, even when you know you won't see the fruits of that labor in your lifetime, but maybe the next generation will. That's often hard to sit with, to bear. Reflecting on this, Lucia Lorenzi, wrote on how frustrating social justice work is, but also how we can have hope. She discusses how maybe the work we are doing is leaving breadcrumbs. She writes, In moments when it feels like the work isn't moving the path forward, when it feels like we are being dragged backwards, I know that we can also do the work of leaving breadcrumbs for others to say that we were here. I am here and let what I leave nourish you as you go forward. End quote. I want us to remember that when we've studied historical social movements in this class, the activists didn't know the future. They didn't know what would happen, but they worked towards the kind of future they wanted to create. As we end our class, I want you to keep asking yourself the question Ruha Benjamin posed in our earlier lecture. Whose vision of the future are we currently living in? Ask yourself, what do you want to do? Ask yourself, how can we build communities that help us flourish? How can we work towards equity? How can we work towards justice? What vision of the future do we want? This class is only a starting point. Keep reading, keep learning, keep listening, keep teaching. This class started with a song and it's going to end with a song. The song is If I Rule the World by Milk, the artist whose song opened the lecture on violence. If I If I rule the world, rule the world, rule the world I give the power to the people Everybody would be equal Fight club, we'd have a sequel And my rent would be much cheaper Jenny wouldn't hate her face
figure when she's small or when she's bigger she'd be kissing on the mirror and the wi-fi would be quicker everybody would recycle fewer cars and more bicycles i'd get testing for corona planned before i let salons open if i If I ruled the world If I ruled the world, ruled the world, ruled the world What kind of world do you want? How can we build it together? Thank you all for your participation this semester. The opening bell sound is School Bell Dot Wave from 13F Panska Stranska Mihaela and the closing bell is from Inspector J's Bell Counter A Dot Wave of Freesound.org doing is an exception to the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permit unauthorized use of copyright material for specific mandate purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, re- review, or news reporting. For research and private study, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.